Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. So this is the story where where Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Is that, am I on the right story here? You are on the right story. That's one of the best stories in the book. You're telling me that that's not real? Oh, man. I'm uh, which is that's, That stays in my version. Well, that's one of the reasons that so many people make such an impassioned case for uh, for treating this historically. They can't imagine a Jesus who does not say that he was without sin cast the first stone, even as they go casting stones. Right. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we seek to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat misinformation about the same. How are you doing today, Dan? Rocking and rolling, baby. It's, uh-huh. uh, it's a good day to learn about the world. Uh, yes, it and- is. As are most days. As are most days. Yeah. Uh, some days you don't want to, but today's a good day. Uh, and we got some fun things coming up. Uh, we're we're keeping it historical. Yeah. As uh, is our won't. As is our won't. We are we are won't to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, maybe we should just dive in uh, with that's history. A question I get an awful lot, and something I think a lot of people don't know about, is how the King James Version came about. One of the most probably the single most influential English translation of the Bible, or perhaps any translation of the Bible that exists. The King James Version, many people know it was published in 1611, that King James had something to do with it. There are a lot of ideas out there about what precisely King James had to do with it, and a lot of misinformation out there. So let's let's get into a discussion of the history of the King James Version. I love it. You know, when I was uh, back uh, some 10-ish years ago, mm-hmm. um, I watched a, a play on London's West End, and I'm trying to remember what that play was called. It was something along the lines of, um, oh, it, oh, it was Written on the Heart. That's what it was. Okay. It was a play called Written on the Heart, and it, uh, it, I think you'd love it. It's it's by a guy named David Edgar, and he was a and and so it and it incorporates it goes through uh, some different moments in history. It has William Tyndale. It has, uh, but the thing that stood out to me was scenes where, and I don't remember it well. So it, you know, if someone else saw this and they you, know, you can correct me if you want to, but it had scenes where, um. There were, the it was a big room where people where where a bunch of men were negotiating what was and wasn't going to go into this new version of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is you know a long time after uh, <clears throat> after uh, what's his name? I just said it. Tyndall. Tyndall. Uh, it's so it's a but yeah it's it's the it's the crafting and uh, and the sort of the 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 political machinations that then became the uh, the King James Bible. So hmm. I'm excited to understand and hear <laughs> a little more about it. Excellent. But uh, actually, to start talking about the King James version, I want to go back to Tyndall, and actually a little bit before Tyndall, to a uh, Dutch humanist scholar named Desiderius Erasmus, uh, and he is working at the very beginning of the 1500s. And he's a scholar publishing all different kinds of stuff. And <clears throat> and at the time, there was uh, one main English translation of the Bible uh, that was Wycliffe's translation. And it was not the product of Wycliffe's own uh, work all by himself. It came together from the work of a lot of different people. But that was the end of the 14th century. So the end of the 1300s, we have Wycliffe's Bible, which is a translation of the Latin Vulgate 
into English. Now, Erasmus does uh, something pretty crafty. There is a desire to have a Greek or an edition of the Greek New Testament. And somebody is working on one. And a publisher who is working with Erasmus comes to him and wants Erasmus to get to it first. Basically cut this other uh, this <laughs> other scholar off. And Erasmus wants to create a new translation of the New Testament in Latin. And so what he does is he creates a two-column text where he has his new Latin translation on one side and then Greek on the other. And the idea is to basically show his work. Here's the Greek text so you can compare and you can see that my translation rules. And uh, in order to do this, he goes to his library in Switzerland, in Basel, and I never know if I'm saying that name right, um, but goes to the library and says, give me all your Greek New Testament manuscripts. And initially he's got like five or six of them. And the oldest one is from like 1100 CE. So right. not incredibly old manuscripts, but he has two manuscripts that represent the overwhelming majority of the text, almost every single verse. And then the other manuscripts, the five or six of them, uh, or four or five of them, are basically, he's going to look at them, and if he thinks one of them may preserve an earlier reading, he might you know, fit that in there. And he's going to cobble together a Greek New Testament. And the last few verses of the book of Revelation are not extant. He does not have them. And so what he does is he takes the Latin Vulgate and translates it back into Greek and then writes <laughs> right. that Greek into the Greek column. Yeah. <clears throat> and he then publishes this um, in the early Look 1500s. Look at how perfect my translation of my translation <laughs> yeah. is. And uh, this becomes the first... Um, edition of the Greek New Testament that had ever been published. And it's cobbled together from a handful of manuscripts. And that Greek side of things becomes the most popular aspect of this publication. I don't think that people really cared about his, his <laughs> translation of the, of the Latin. But oh, poor Erasmus. <clears throat> he goes on and does several more editions of this. And um, many years later, it becomes known as the Textus Receptus, which is Latin for the received text. Right. Uh, and this is what's known as an eclectic manuscript or an eclectic edition. We've looked at all the manuscripts. This does not represent one single manuscript, but we've cobbled together what we believe are the best readings from the manuscripts that we had available. And as he's doing these other editions, he gets he looks at some other manuscripts and he brings some other manuscripts uh, into view. Uh, but I don't think he ever gets more than like 14 or 15 manuscripts um, that he's consulting as a part of this. The second edition of his text is what Martin Luther uses to uh, create his translation of the New Testament. Now we have a Greek text that we can use so that we're not translating from the Latin. We're translating all the way back from the Greek. Uh, William Tyndall does the same thing, translates his New Testament from the Greek provided by Erasmus's Textus Receptus. Uh, and this becomes very, very popular. Uh, over the next uh, 200 years, you have uh, many, many translations going on. You also have many editions of the Textus Receptus being produced, uh, all kind of in the same uh, tradition. They're not departing significantly from each other. They're doing, they're making small little adjustments here and there based on, oh, I actually like the way this manuscript reads here uh, over the other. William Tyndall. Sorry, I just started jumping in. Is, is uh, in Erasmus's Greek side of things, since mm -hmm. this was uh, eclectic and come, came from various different Greek manuscripts, yeah, did he put multiple manuscript versions in his on the Greek side of things, or did he just put whatever the ones that he wanted in? Yeah, so he used two manuscripts as his base text, and then if there were readings in the other manuscripts that he thought were more original, he would write those in place of what okay. the other manuscript was. So he's producing a single text with one version of every of every passage in the New Testament. And all of these <clears throat> other translators are then taking his Textus Receptus text as sort of the definitive thing yes. and not bothering to then go back to the other manuscripts to verify if they agree with the uh, the calls that Erasmus had been making. 
So some of them are going to do that to the degree that they're able, but they don't have great access to all these manuscripts. Uh, and, and we had not discovered the overwhelming majority of the manuscripts that we had now. So yes, for the most part, translators are trusting that whatever edition of the Textus Receptus is most recent is based on the best scholarship comparing these manuscripts. Um, and so Tyndall does his New Testament and does a couple editions of that. And he gets, uh, he starts translating the Hebrew Bible as well. And he gets through uh, all the way up through, I think, Kings and then does like Jonah. <clears throat> and those are published. And then he is executed and famously says, uh, oh, Lord, open the king of England's eyes um, uh, because it was still illegal to produce English translations or any vernacular translation. And uh, then we have a, a guy named Miles Coverdale who comes in and he wants to produce his own edition uh, of the full Bible. So he takes Tyndall's New Testament and what he translated of the Hebrew Bible, and then he fills it in. Only Coverdale does not know Hebrew. So Coverdale takes um, the uh, German translations that are available, the Latin translations that are available, and he compares those and then produces an English translation of those to fill in the gaps left by Tyndall. And then we have a handful of others who are um, going through and revising the editions that came before. So we've got Matthew's Bible. Uh, we've got Witch Church's Bible. We've got the Geneva Bible. We've got the Great Bible. We've got the Bishop's Bible. These are all taking all the translations that had come before, making little tweaks here and there, uh, and then releasing an edition of the Bible in English. And you can actually go find PDFs of all of these online fairly easily. And mm. it is absolutely fascinating to chart the trajectory of uh, renderings of certain passages. It's fascinating stuff. If you're listening to the audio, this will be meaningless to you. But uh, <laughs> I have a page from, I, this was a gift I was given by my former colleagues uh, working in scripture translation for the LDS church. I have a manuscript page from the uh, a 1549 version of, I believe, the Tyndale Matthew Bible. So wow. um, I still have to get it framed. Uh, but in America, trying to frame A4 paper is, is such a huge headache. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. It's not on A4 paper. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, that is interesting about these translations is they're starting to add notes to them. The Geneva Bible is called by some people the world's first study Bible because it has introductions to a lot of the books and it has a lot of explanatory notes in the margins. And this Geneva Bible becomes the most popular Bible translation around. This is what the uh, Puritans took with them. This uh, and, and it supported kind of a Puritan take on uh, Christianity. And it, this is this is an English translation, regardless of the fact that English was not pr presumably what was spoken in Geneva. <laughs> Correct. Uh, this was published in 1560, uh, the Geneva Bible. There, there were people who spoke English uh, in 1560, but it wasn't like the national language. Uh, the Bishop's Bible was supposed to be for the church. And then in um, 1604, we have the Hampton Court Conference, which was supposed to be uh, a come to Jesus moment between um, Anglicans and uh, Puritans. And there was very little coming to Jesus on, on either side of, of the aisle. But one of the things that uh, a man named Reynolds did was say, hey, we need a new translation of the Bible we can all come together on on that. That will help uh, Christianity become more unified. And this was one of the things that King James was like, I, I like the cut of his jib. And so <laughs> he decided he was going to approve that request. And thus was born the um, initiative to create what would become the King James version of the Bible. Now, King so James this is, was, this is sorry, this is an express attempt to merge to create a Bible that could be useful both for the Church of England and uh the Puritans. Is that is that That was what so I think some people were hoping would happen. That was not King James intentions. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> King James would just was wanted to put on a show that he was willing to um kind of come to the table, but uh, had very little interest in um, 
acquiescing to uh, Puritan needs. But what King, King James did see an opportunity for was replacing the Geneva Bible, because one of the things the Geneva Bible was, was very anti-monarchic, mm. was very critical of kingship and, and monarchies. And, and this is something you find in the Hebrew Bible. We have no king but God. Uh, you actually see some kind of conflict in parts of the Hebrew Bible where people are saying that we shouldn't have a king. The Lord is our king. And other people saying the Lord needs to give us a king. <clears throat> and, uh, and so the Geneva Bible is on the we have no king but Adonai side of things. And their um, explanatory notes kind of supported that. They were anti-monarchical. And so King James saw this as an opportunity to try to supplant that. Uh, and so there were a list of 15 rules drafted for the translation of the King James Version. To begin, it was not really a translation in its own right. It was a revision of a 1602 edition of the Bishop's Bible. We're basically taking this ecclesiastical text, the Bishop's Bible, and we're just going to do a light revision to it. Uh, and so the rule was, and I'll go ahead and read this as it, as it was originally written, the ordinary Bible read in church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. So very conservative uh, revision of this text. And there are some scholars who have compared the King James Version to the Tyndall New Testament, and it matches word for word about 84% of the time. And then for the uh, Old Testament that was produced for the uh, for Tyndall's Old Testament and then the Coverdale Bible, it matches about 75% of the time. So they're wow. following very, very closely in the footsteps of the translations that have come before. Um, but Tyndall did some stuff that... Um, King James didn't like. Uh, Tyndall, and actually one of the reasons that Tyndall got killed was because he was trying to undercut a lot of the uh, structuring of power in favor of the institution of the church. So Tyndall didn't like the word church. He translated congregation. He didn't like the word priests. He translated elders. In fact, uh, he was much of the church's condemnation of him was revolving around, I think, five or six words that he oh, wow. picked for his translation that moved away from kind of this ecclesiastical institutional model and towards kind of a more individual congregational uh, model. And so the third rule that King James laid down was the old ecclesiastical words to be kept vis-a-vis -vis the word church, not to be translated congregation, etc. Um, Interesting. You know, <clears throat> people, for anyone who says it doesn't matter how you translate it, it's still the word of God, tell that to a guy who's tied to a stake over five different words. Yeah, yeah. That's it's, nuts. Yeah, it's incredibly significant. Um, and then the uh, number six, rule number six, I think, is one of the interesting ones. So I said the Geneva Bible has a lot of marginal notes, and a lot of them are very anti-monarchical. Number six, no marginal notes at all to be affixed. Okay. But only for the explanation of the Hebrew or Greek words, which cannot without some circumlocution so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. Um, so King James didn't want any of that anti-monarchical sentiment in the text. <clears throat> and to the degree that he had any say over the text itself, he seems to have had some influence on the removal of the word tyrant from a handful of passages. Um, so the King James Version does not have the, these occurrences of the word tyrant because he didn't like that idea. At least, Weird. Why wouldn't he like that? That seems like... Yeah. So a lot of people have, have noted that King James seems to have had some gay lovers who had access to his quarters through secret passages and, and some of the, the places that were built for him and, and things like that. And so there are a lot of, I've, I've heard rumors that, oh, he did this or that to, to try to influence the text one way or another regarding um, homosexuality in the Bible. And we talked a bit about that in, in the episode we did a while ago, but I don't see any indication whatsoever that he had any influence at all on how the passages that are thought to be relevant to homosexuality in the Bible. Um, I don't see any evidence that uh, he influenced that at all. So if anybody is wondering what, yeah, what about that? Um, I don't think there's a case to make that he had any, any influence there. Hmm. 
But the text is uh, basically there are companies that are put together. They're, the number of people involved, uh, we're not exactly sure, but somewhere around 48 or 50 scholars. And they're uh, put in companies and then they're assigned certain texts. You have like the New Testament, you have uh, the prophets, you have uh, the Apocrypha, you have a handful of different um, divisions of the text assigned to these groups. And they're sent physical copies of the 1602 edition of the Bishop's Bible. And then they are literally crossing stuff out and writing in the margins what should go here. So they weren't even going from scratch, writing down the Bishop's Bible translation. They were actually writing their their recommended changes into the margins of the Bishop's Bible. And then they would be collected. And well, one of the first things they did before that was meet together uh, to discuss, consult about how they were rendering things. And so you talk about a, a meeting in a big room where they're trying to figure out what to include. If they're talking about what books to include, that was never up for debate. That was never discussed. It was always going to be the books that were in the Bishop's Bible. But if this was a meeting where they're saying, I like this rendering better than this other one over here, um, or no, you're an idiot, it should be this way over here, that most likely did happen. So um, I don't know the contents of that meeting in that play, but um, it could, it may or may not have been somewhat historical. Right. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. And so after they deliberate, um, the editors take the text and they get this final version. Now, it didn't always work exactly how it was supposed to work. There is evidence that uh, a lot of people didn't do their job. Uh, there were people who carried the whole team, so to speak, for a lot of these <laughs> companies. Uh, and there were a lot of issues uh, as this went on. And if you want a really great discussion of this, there's a book called God's Secretaries that uh, is all about the translators of the King James Version of the Bible. Some of them we know more about than others. Uh, in fact, we have some uh, a collection of notes that were kept by one of the people involved in the translation, which is just invaluable to reconstructing this history. Uh, but there's not a ton that we can talk about, or at least that I can remember, about the details of the translation until we come out the other end in 1611 with this publication of the King James Version, which was not obviously not called the King James Version at the time, but uh, some of the formatting things I think are interesting. You have versification, which is something that started in 1551, uh, but the versification is uh, is front and center in the King James Version. Uh, and by that you mean delineating out, numbering each verse. Yes, uh, yes. 
specifically. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, because that before then it wasn't. It was just. <clears throat> it was just uh, normal paragraphs. Yep. Uh, the way the way we would normally see a book. Yeah, and there was uh, there was one editor of an edition of the Texas Receptus. I'm pretty sure it's the 1551 edition. I think Stephanos was the editor, but that was the first New Testament to introduce uh, versification. And so the versification is not even 500 years old in the New Testament. Wow. Um, and so they also um, increased punctuation. And there was a reason for this. Almost every clause is set off by a comma or a semicolon or a colon or something like that. And the reason was uh, this allowed the reader to speak in shorter fragments and pause because this was not a text intended to be read privately or quietly. This was intended to be read in churches, in public, in a group setting. In fact, on the frontispiece of the 1611 edition, it says, appointed to be read in churches. It was an enormous text. It was far too, it was a showpiece. It was too big for normal private use and was frequently chained to the pulpit. Uh, mm. And so this was a text that was designed to be read out loud in a church. And the verses were intended to allow people listening to be able to know where things were, to be able to look things up. And you put, you separated out each verse into its own paragraph so that you could scan the page and more quickly find the verse you were looking for. <clears throat> and so when we think about the way Bibles are formatted, these Bibles were not formatted for somebody to sit down in their living room and read by themselves. These were intended for public oral reading. And that may not sound like a huge deal, but um, this does influence how the texts are used and how people make meaning with the texts. Um, I think this is a fascinating aspect of the history of the King James Version, but I imagine that most everybody listening is like, move on with it. Um, <laughs> so it gets published and it's not incredibly popular at the start. We have reviews that uh, say, man, it's okay. It's outdated. Uh, because it was such a conservative revision of such conservative revisions of such conservative revisions, it's basically using the same language that Tyndall was using almost a century before. So the day the King James Version hit the shelves in 1611, it was using language that people were used to hearing from their grandparents. Interesting. So it, as outdated as we think of it today, it was outdated on the very first day it was released. Um, and so <clears throat> yeah, that's it, something you don't necessarily think about because, you know, it, <laughs> at this point, it just that kind of language, whether it be from this, you know, from the KJV or, you know, people associated with Shakespearean language because mm -hmm. Shakespeare was about the same time. Uh, it just sounds fancy to art, to, to a modern ear. But yeah, it, for it to have been you know, almost a hundred years old in, in its, in how it sounds, that's a very different sound. Like yeah. language changes fast. Yeah. It, it changes very fast. And so it did not become popular right off the bat, even though the King, you know, was like, I want one in every household. It, uh, it did not become the most popular translation until around 1660 when the Geneva Bible went out of print and it was there to fill in that vacuum. Um, but it went through new editions and new printings almost every year because there was a lot of money to be made because this was the official Bible of the church. And so <clears throat> only a few publishers had rights to publish it. And so they were, they were raking in money. Now, the most editions of the King James Version that people get today are actually not the 1611. They're the 1769. One of these editions that was made was made by a, a guy named Benjamin Blaney uh, in Oxford in 1769, and that became colloquially referred to as the authorized version. Uh, and for whatever reason, like it, the differences are not huge, but there are differences here and there between that edition and the 1611 edition. But that became the most popular edition, and that is what has been reproduced in most editions of the King James Version ever since.
Was there something specific that prompted that revision? Why did that happen? Why, um, why was the original not good enough? There were always concerns with how perfect the, the new edition was uh, regarding not, not a ton having to do with new manuscripts that were being discovered, but people would identify certain um, typos or people would say, you know, it's been translated this way for so long. This is garbage. We need to translate it another way. So the little tiny things would be changed. And, you know, there would be kind of a critical mass of concern and people would be like, uh, gosh, darn it. We need a new edition of the Bible again. And so Blaney's was just the one that kind of became the most, um, popular one. And so but we still call that the King James version. Still the King James know? version. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very tiny revision of, of the text. Um, and talking about language again, uh, when we get into the 1600 or the 1700s, excuse me, a lot of the language of the King James version has dropped out of favor, but we suddenly get this rush of antiquarian interest. We need to get back to the old ways. You know, things were so much better in the good old days. And so the language is brought back into uh, vogue because the King James Version is there. And that happens again in the 1800s. The Second Great Awakening makes, there's a kind of a resurgence of antiquarian interest and people go back to the King James Version as the standard, even though it never really was the standard. And so a lot of people think of the King James Version as this pinnacle of English literature. The truth is that is an accident of history. It was never the pinnacle of English literature until one of these attempts to go back to the way it was in the good old days, the Second Great Awakening, resulted in the King James Version because of the American Bible Society just flooding not only the American market, but American schoolhouses. Oh. It became the, the translation that was used to teach children English. And so that cemented it in the foundation of the United States of America. Um, another interesting thing to note in the 1800s, the American Bible Society and the British and Foreign Bible Society up till the 1800s had been including the Apocrypha in every edition. The Apocrypha was a part of the Bible. Now, when Luther produced his edition, he didn't like a lot of, he didn't like the Apocrypha for one, and he didn't like a lot of books in the Bible, Hebrews, James, Revelation, handful of others. He was like, these are garbage. I'm putting them in the back. And in earlier editions, the Apocrypha was just scattered among the other texts of the Hebrew Bible. Luther says, nope, I'm putting them together. They're in one section. They're the Apocrypha. And so this um, and, you know, his movement of all those other books to the back, James and Revelation, all those other things, that was kind of after a few editions, he was like, okay, fine. And they went back to where they were. But the Apocrypha stayed a separate collection, which is one of the things that facilitated the American Bible Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society in the mid-1900s saying, we could move a lot more Bibles if we just pulled this out and makes for a thinner Bible, easier to print, costs less money. And so they took, started taking the Apocrypha out and producing this Apocrypha-less, sans Apocrypha Bible, which quickly became phenomenally popular, and the Apocrypha was never seen again uh, among Protestants. And, and you said that was in the 1900s? Uh, Mid-19th century. Um, okay. So the mid-1800s, yeah. Okay. And so... Um, this is around the time period that Protestants are are getting annoyed with the the Apocrypha, and uh, it gets taken out, and it does not return to Protestant editions of the Bible for the most part. You know, if you get an NRSV today, it's gonna usually it's gonna have the Apocrypha in it, but you can get editions that do not. So, the King James, the original KJV, had these books in it. Yep that that is crazy to me because <laughs> I the way that you hear. A lot of uh, you know cr Bible creators online talking about versions and talking about the the perfection of this you know the Holy Word of God. It, you know it's a it's become a definite theme of our show that this is you know that there this is not a a book that is you know breathed by God word for word or whatever. But even the book that's in their hand as they're doing it has been edited and changed in oh, yeah. huge ways that they're yeah. just not acknowledging or they don't know. Yeah. 
A lot of people don't know this history. They don't know that the Apocrypha was a part of it. They don't know that the spelling of Jesus with an I, Jesus, uh, Sean Connery would be very disappointed in most Protestants today for not knowing that it begins with an I. Um, <laughs> but in the in, if you go look at a 1611 King James Version, it's going to be I-E-S-U-S for um, Jesus. Uh, there are a number of things that they that they don't know about the history of the King James Version. Um, most people tend to think of the edition that they grew up with or the edition of their lifetime as somehow having just fallen out of the sky and <laughs> yeah. without an enormous um, history behind it. There's a, the famous, famous edition of the King James Version called the Adulterer's Bible. Uh, do you recall this one? No. <laughs> The, uh, the Ten Commandments, there was a typo, and one of the commandments says, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> <laughs> I re now I remember that, yes. Yeah, yeah. I so, need a copy of that one. I like that They uh, They are not cheap. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there have been, there have been these uh, typos and, and things like that throughout the history of, of these different editions that uh, have resulted in some humorous uh, anecdotes that probably cost someone... Um, <laughs> some jail time, if not their life. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the King James version that we, that we have today largely is, uh, 1769 Blaney edition. There are a number of things about the King James version that I think would, would surprise an awful lot of people, but in terms of the motivations for its production, this is really King James trying to, uh, cement his legacy, trying to protect his power. He was motivated by a desire to put down kind of the Puritan factions that were challenging the, the legitimacy of his reign, the legitimacy of the monarchy. He was trying to protect this translation from uh, giving power to those who challenged the institution. Uh, and there's not a ton more that King James was involved in. He did not translate it himself. He did not write the Bible. There are folks that think the thing changed wildly that either new books were added in or or old books were taken out or that people uh i've heard theories that the idea that you know thou shalt not allow a witch to live that passage that that was something introduced by king james because he was a notorious witch hunter totally false uh <laughs> because we can look at the other editions the bishop's bible the great bible the geneva bible all the way back to uh, Coverdale and Tyndall, and we can see most of these things are already in place. The King James Version is kind of a boring, very conservative, not incredibly up-to-date revision that really became the most influential Bible translation uh, to exist because of historical accident more than anything else. Interesting. Well, you know, the one of the things that we are uh, that that we're going to talk about uh, coming up is some ways that King James, uh, well, the, the guys who did the King James Bible, <laughs> uh, so some ways that they might have gotten it wrong. So should we just move on to that? Let's do it. So on this edition of Know Your Bible, uh, we're going to jump off of the KJV train uh, in an interesting way, which is that there are there's a bunch of verses in that if you're looking in your KJV, you're going to find them, and if you're looking in a whole bunch of other versions, they're just going to be missing. Yeah, this this is something I I see videos on this a lot, and it's always the same verse. And the reason it's the same verse is because this is the first verse where this happens in the canonical New Testament. And for some reason, people never seem to read past that. But um, you'll see you'll see a lot of things on social media where somebody's like, um, I was just reading and I never noticed this before. But if you look in Matthew 17, go look for verse 21. And they'll show in there, they'll be like, I brought out all my different translations of the Bible, and it goes from verse 20 straight to verse 22, and it skips over verse 21, and it blows many people's minds. That's and, Satan's work right there. <laughs> yeah, and they're, and obviously they're immediately going to Revelation. Someone has taken from 
this book, taking something out of the book. <clears throat> and the reality is that the most translations of the New Testament today are based on better manuscripts, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that verse was not part of the original New Testament. That verse was something that someone later down the road added in. And so if your translation is missing Matthew 17, 21, you have a better translation. You have a version of the New Testament that is closer to the original. Unfortunately, it is very difficult to convince an awful lot of folks of that with data because <laughs> they are too mired in dogma. Um, are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I, I guess that's a point. <laughs> so the podcast is called Big Picture Science, and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. But let's go back to the King James Version for a minute. We talked about the Textus Receptus being the authoritative um source text for translations of the Bible. And this had been cobbled together from uh, what started out as just a handful of manuscripts that Erasmus had available to him in his library in Switzerland. Between the early 1500s and now, we've discovered literally thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. And we have found some early manuscripts that people knew about, in the days of Erasmus, like Vaticanus, for instance, was a text that people knew about, but was under lock and key in the Vatican. And Erasmus knew somebody who had access to it. And so there were a few, there were a few instances where he said, hey, go look up this verse for me. Tell me what's going on here. And he would get answers about that. But he never had access, full access to the full manuscript of Vaticanus, which is a uh, fourth, maybe fifth century manuscript of the full Bible. And, you know, that's 800 years earlier than the manuscripts Erasmus was working with. But since wow, then. Wow, that is a significant number of years. Yeah. And <clears throat> as, the, as the science slash art of biblical archaeology was developing, particularly in the 1800s, we started to discover a lot more manuscripts of the Bible. Um, there's the famous discovery of Sinaiticus, which is our earliest manuscript of the full Bible that we know of. That's probably mid to late 4th century CE. In fact, there are some people who think that this may have been one of the copies of the Bible that Constantine commissioned Eusebius to produce uh, following the Council of Nicaea. Um, and this was discovered by somebody who was in St. Catherine's Monastery at the top of the traditional location of Mount Sinai, who was looking at some papers that were in a bin 
that was intended to be used for kindling <laughs> and said, wow. what the what? And um, <laughs> Maybe don't burn this bit. <laughs> this bit might be important. But uh, found Sinaiticus, which has become one of the most important um, manuscripts of the New Testament. But we've, we found um, Codex Ephraimi uh, Rescriptus. I, I'm probably screwing up the Latin there. But this was a palimpsest. Um, and it, for those of you who don't know what a palimpsest is, that is when someone needs paper to write on or vellum or, or some kind of manuscript paper. And so they take an existing uh, text and they scrape the ink off or wipe it off or something like that. And then they usually will turn it 90 degrees or something like that and then write their own text. And somebody found a text and was like, there's something under here and found a manuscript of the Bible that was probably fifth century. Uh, and then we find papyri that go all the way back to um, maybe even as early as around 125 CE. So we've discovered a ton of things. And as scholars have looked at these texts and the science slash art of textual criticism has developed, we've got a much better idea of what the New Testament probably said. So in 1881, there was a new edition of the King James Version published called the Revised Version. But one of the things that this version did was make use of a lot of these new editions uh, of the Greek New Testament that were incorporating the readings from a lot of the newly discovered manuscripts, which meant there were a number of changes to the text, um, including an omission here or there. And over since 1881, we've since had the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, and a number of other translations that have settled on about 16 verses from the New Testament, where scholars are pretty sure that those verses did not exist at all in the earliest New Testament. And Matthew 17:21 is an interesting one because this is one where our earliest manuscripts don't have it at all. And Sinaiticus is interesting because you can look at the, the page in Sinaiticus and the verse is written at the top of the page with a little symbol next to it. And then that symbol is written right in the middle of one of the columns, basically saying, put this here. And then later manuscripts have that little scribbled passage in the, uh, in the, the text. And that little scribbled passage is borrowed from Mark because it's telling the same story. And what's missing is this statement that Jesus, this is the, the disciples, they say, we were not able to cast out this demon. And, de and Jesus says, uh, this kind cometh not out except by prayer and fasting. And so someone has taken that statement from Mark and wrote it in the margins uh, of the manuscript that has that story in Matthew and later down the road, it just got incorporated right into Matthew. And so we know that that is not an original part of Matthew. And so these days it gets plucked out and there are about 15 other passages uh, where this is where, where these verses are commonly missing. And most of them are because it appears somebody tried to copy something from another gospel in order to align the text of the Gospels, or there's been some kind of expansion where someone has added a doxology uh, or something like that. Talk about a doxology. I don't know. That's what that a, is. a glorification. It's basically saying praise God for this, that, and the other, or God is this, that, and the other. It's it's a, a little uh, bit of praise that is added in, but a lot of them are are harmonizations with other texts. Yeah, because it's so funny to me that people want to hold on to these, uh, you know, want want to make this a conspiracy theory so so badly because it's not like removing these uh, verses removes them from the book. They're in, you know, as you say, this, uh, you know, this thing in Matthew is also in Mark. It exists mm -hmm. in the book. Yeah. And that's the case, you know, as I was going through these, that's the case with most of them. It's... It may not be, you know, it it's either in another book in the same, you know, part of the story, or it's even in, you know, there's the one, there's the case of of Mark nine, uh, where they take out forty, verse forty four and verse forty six, because it's repeated. If you leave them in, it's repeated three times. It's yeah. also the same as verse forty eight. Yeah, and you know that makes for an interesting sort of poetic moment. Yeah, where it's almost a call and response moment, where like they keep 
putting in this thing over and over again. But by removing it, you're not changing meaning of anything. Yeah. You're not changing. Yeah. And then so the Mark one is interesting because that's this statement that's borrowed from Isaiah 66 that we talked about in our episode on the development of the concept of hell. That's it's a right. quotation from the Hebrew Bible, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And so where that's just, they're repeating something three times and they add that to the last iteration. Now they're like, no, nah, we want to say that every time. So it's <laughs> say something where their worm dieth not. Say something else where their worm dieth not. And so it's, yeah, it's it's poetic. It's uh, repetitive, but it wasn't there to begin with. Right. Um, and so I it think, does no harm to remove it. Yeah. There's an interesting one, John chapter five. We have this story. Uh, um, I think we're at the pool of, it's Bethesda, isn't it? Pretty sure it's Bethesda, um, where there's the uh, paralyzed man who can't get down into the water, mm. and the water's supposed to heal him. And there's a thing where it says an angel came down a, a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, and who the first person to get into the water after that was healed. And this is a weird kind of uh, mythology that's that's in the story there. But that is not in the earliest manuscripts. That is something that was added in later. And and that's an, an instance where it seems somebody wanted an explanation. Why do they think this water is going to heal them again? And somebody was like, there was an angel that would come down and wiggle his finger in the water. And then you knew you had to jump in. And uh, so that is something that was uh, that was added in later. So some of this is is theological change. Some of it is intentional change. A lot of it is is just kind of harmonization and wanting things to sound a little better. Um, but there are a couple of big ones. You mentioned Mark nine. Another big one is uh, is Mark sixteen, the end of the Gospel of Mark, where we have the empty tomb, and. Um, the story has the disciples running in fear. And then we have Jesus visiting them, and we have this post-resurrection ministry going on for a few passages or a few verses till we get to the end of, of Mark 16. That ending is not in our earliest manuscripts. We have this much, much shorter ending that kind of abruptly ties off the story right after the disciples run. And even that ending may have been added later on. Um, and so many contemporary translations will have either a footnote or they'll put brackets around the last dozen or so verses of, uh, the gospel of Mark saying, Hey man, this isn't in some of our earliest witnesses. And, um, some scholars think that this ended very abruptly with the, the Greek particle gar, which generally means four or something like that, but it can be at the end uh, of a sentence, but as a, it is a little awkward to end a sentence that way, very awkward to end a whole book that way. But there are some scholars that argue this was intentionally an abrupt ending to kind of um, inject the audience with this sense of, of urgency and of anxiety. The tomb is empty. And then, you know, scene. And so, <laughs> um, and, and there's a theory that Mark was written for to be performed, that it was in, in, uh, intended as a play. Um, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of scholarship on that. I think it's a fascinating discussion uh, as well. And um, I think one of, the, one of the stories that is not in our earliest manuscripts and then begins to show up in the manuscripts, but not where we know it today, is the story of the woman taken in adultery. So this is at the very end of of John 7 and mostly in John 8. But uh, in some manuscripts, we find this in Luke. In other manuscripts, it's in other places in John. And in our earliest manuscripts, it's not there at all. And scholars are in pretty widespread agreement that this is a uh, a later addition to the text. And But this is such a famous story, and it's so central to a lot of people's understanding of the gospel and the life of Jesus that there are an awful lot of people who still want to make the argument that it is historical and that it is something that the author of the Gospel of John told and that it just got separated and then was brought back into the, the fold a little later on. Uh, but many 
contemporary translations of the New Testament will put that story in brackets and include a footnote saying, hey man, this is not in our earliest witnesses, just, you know, heads up. So this is the story where where Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Is that, am I on the right story here? You are on the right story. They He's uh, walking around in the temple. They bring him the woman, say she was caught in the act of adultery in the very act. Uh, and they say, Moses said that she should be stoned. What say you? And he bends down and he writes in the sand. Um, and then he stands up and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then they... And then they they depart from the young. It's either from the youngest to the oldest or the oldest to the youngest. I don't remember which. But then when they're all gone, she um, he says, uh, "Where are your accusers?" And she says, "There's no one's left." And he says, "Go and sin no more." That's one of the best stories in the book. You're telling me that that's not real? Oh man! I'm which is it. that's that stays in my version. Well, that's one of the reasons that so many people make such an impassioned case for uh, for treating this historically. They can't imagine a Jesus who does not say that he was without sin cast the first stone, even as they go casting stones. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, and the and the whole drawing in the sand thing. People mm. are like, "Oh, he was writing down the names of everybody, and he was writing down their sins <laughs> and um, getting and, their addresses right." And you, <laughs> yeah. what, what's your social security he, number? He was, I'm writing he was, that down. He was doxing her accusers <laughs> in the sand, and and the reality is probably much more mundane, and that is that this has resonances with the sota, the ritual from Numbers 5, where if a man suspects a woman of adultery, he takes her to the temple, and then the priest writes down a curse on a piece of paper, scrapes the ink off into some water, and then takes some sand, some dirt from the temple floor, chucks it in the water, and she's got to drink this concoction. And then if she is guilty, her... um her genitals are distended and deformed and her belly swells and most likely she dies. But the idea is she is stricken with infertility. And if she is innocent, then she becomes more fertile and she will conceive. Um, and we've, we've talked to, um, indirectly about this a number of times in the past, but there, we have a lot of elements of this going yeah. on in this story. Woman, taken in adultery, brought to Jesus at the temple, and he writes in the dirt of the temple floor. And in a sense, he's um, asserting authority to judge the woman, saying just like the, um, you know, the curse that she drinks is going to determine whether she's guilty or innocent. Jesus scribbling in the dirt on the floor stands up and, and says, you know, uh, nor do I condemn you is a way of saying, this is my purview. I have authority over questions of guilt and innocence when it comes to adultery. So I, mean, I think that's probably what's going on. He made the potion of the sota, and then he said, all of you have to drink it. <laughs> he turned around and went, pocket sand! And, <laughs> and then made his escape. <laughs> so so what are we to make of, of, uh, of all of this? It, I think I I think part of the fascinating thing about the removal of these spurious verses is that this is still to this modern day a bit of a living document. It is it is yeah. bound to continue to be updated. Absolutely. And the only reason that anybody notices anything is gone is because they maintain the traditional versification. Right. Because if they if they said we're going to make verse 21, we're going to, you know, move 22 up to fill 21, then you've screwed up the rest of the chapter and then, you know, you can't compare verses between Bibles anymore. Um and that versification again doesn't come until uh 1500 years after you know, the time of Paul. So there are these elements that we're adding to the text, and there are these ways we're curating the text that then result in in these sensitivities. And, you know, if this happened and we didn't have any verses in the passages, no one would know and no one would care. Um, <laughs> right. But because there's a there's skipping from verse 20 to 22, suddenly this is this 
there's a problem with my Bible. Um, but it is a better Bible. It is more um, faithful to the earliest text as far as we can reconstruct it. And there will hopefully be more and more insight in the future regarding the earliest shape of the text that will allow us to refine our Bible translations and it will it will continue to baffle me if that causes more consternation <laughs> from folks to like what? tearing their hair out over the fact that our Bible is now more accurate than it was before. Put on um, your helmet, buddy. You're prepared to be baffled. <laughs> it will just that's uh that is going to continue as yep. long as there's changes. Well, I I find it fascinating. I love it. If you guys at home uh, would like to hear a little bit more about this subject chances are you can do so uh dan and i do uh, some patron only content after every show so if you want to become a patron and here's what we have more conversation about this you can go to patreon.com slash data over dogma uh and become a, you know just kick a couple bucks our way every now and then and uh and we'll we'll give you a little bit more content for the rest of you thank you so much for tuning in we sure appreciate it uh, you can write into us, contact at dataoverdogmapod.com if you have any questions, and we'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com.